We are in Daniel chapter 7, for those of you who braved the storm, and I realize storm is a relative term, right, because we are in the Northeast, and like, this would shut down Lynchburg, Virginia for like two weeks, but for us, you know, this is just like Tuesday, right, so it's good to see you guys here looking so chipper. You never, you know what, I would never be able to tell that you lost an hour of sleep. I wouldn't, I wouldn't. I can see your energy and excitement already. We are in Daniel 7 today, and what a chapter it is. It has been said that Daniel chapter 7 is the most important chapter in the entire book, and also one of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. So, no pressure, right? So, we're good. Um, We're going to start today by reading a good portion of that, uh, that chapter We're going to start in Daniel chapter 7. We're going to go from 1 to verse 18. Just we need to hear these words. We need to see them on the pages in front of us or on the screen behind us. And just just listen to what the word of the Lord is saying. Daniel chapter 7 starting in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. And then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and it was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. 
So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. And right here, these two verses, I think, encapsulate the entire chapter and probably the entire book of Daniel. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High God shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. Amen. So we change today from cute stories about really faithful old guys to the visions of Daniel's head that left him anxious and alarmed. And it leaves me a little anxious and alarmed, I'm not going to lie. No longer are we talking about lion's dens and fiery furnaces. Now we're talking about big horns and little horns and courts and the books being opened and beasts and there's a lot going on here. As we begin today, I've, I've entitled the message Terror in the Night, or maybe Terror in the Pulpit. Well, I don't know how we're going to get to this. Uh, there's a couple things we need to keep in mind as we move into this portion of the book of Daniel. That, that the next five to six chapters that we're going to look at are different in style and different in genre. They are not written as narrative stories. They are apocalyptic visions. They are prophecy in its purest form. And it, apocalyptic literature, we've talked about this before, especially as we've looked at the book of Revelation, it has a, a special kind of, of characteristic to it. It is different than other stories, other literature. It's different than poetry that you would find in the Psalms or, or even the Proverbs. It's, it's different than the, the stories you would, the narrative, the history that you would read in Joshua or Judges or Chronicles or Kings. It's, it's different than all that. Apocalyptic literature is a type of writing that is full of symbols and images, numbers and visions and language. It, it has been said that apocalyptic language and literature is like the literary shock treatment. It, its whole purpose is to alarm us, which is good because then it's, it's doing what it's supposed to do because that, those 18 verses are alarming to say the least. That, that's the purpose of apocalyptic language and literature. It's supposed to alert us and alarm us, to wake us up. The, thing, the things that the writers of apocalyptic literature, like Daniel and, the, and John, the things that they see are so dramatic and so overwhelming that they often struggle to capture with words what's really there. So that you hear a whole lot of, it was like this, and I saw something like that. They're trying to take this, this divine, glorious, heavenly vision they're seeing and wrap it into finite language that somebody would understand. And then you, then you fast forward a couple thousand years and now you have our, our dilemma that we're trying to understand what they were getting to. Now as we launch out to do, to do so, we should do it with that basic understanding in mind that, that God reveals himself through this apocalyptic literature and it might be difficult at times for us to grasp, but we need to remember that the God we serve is faithful to reveal himself in his word and he's faithful to provide his Holy Spirit to bring illumination to the scriptures, to enlighten our minds and our hearts so that we might understand and know what is being said here. And while not all the passages of scripture are equally clear and plain to us, they are all inspired by God and profitable for us. And I think that you'll see today great encouragement from Daniel chapter seven. So let's just jump in, shall we? 
The first thing we're going to look at is this parade of beasts in, in verse 1 through 8. He starts with a bit of a timestamp in the year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Remember Belshazzar? He was the one who saw the writing on the wall in Daniel chapter 5. Right? He was the one who, who was the son or grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. He was the one who lost the kingdom. As Darius the Mede and his armies were waiting. So this is happening in the past. It's, it's not chronological. Daniel chapter 6, he's an old man. Daniel 7, this, this, is like a, this is like the prequels in the Star Wars series, right? This is, this is Rogue One. Why in the world do they not just continue to, I don't know, but they jumped back and now we have to pick up in the middle of a series. So this happened in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. Daniel saw a dream. And in the dream, he saw the four winds of heaven, the four winds of the four directions of the compass, north, south, east, and west, covering all directions. The, these four winds of heaven are churning up the great sea. Are you lost yet? The, the great sea, the, the chaotic disruption of humanity. So out of, out of the swirling mess and, and chaotic disruption of humanity, the four winds of heaven are stirring and calling out these four great beasts. The peoples of the earth are portrayed, the, the kingdoms of the earth, the story of human history is portrayed as this sea of humanity in a constant state of unrest, turmoil. It's an apt description of today's world, isn't it? We... Wars and rumors of wars, kingdoms warring against other kingdoms, nations against nations. We see this playing out all the time right in front of us. And it appears from our perspective that the world we live in is a chaotic and disrupted place. But out of this chaos, these beasts come because the four winds of heaven summon them. There's something to, to be said there about the control of the Most High. That out of the chaos, he summons the beasts. And these four beasts come. And at this point of the vision, they're just terrifying beasts. But we know in verse 17 that the angel standing by explained to them that these are four kingdoms of the earth. And I don't want to go into too great a detail, but although it's sometimes debated, I would agree with a historic position that these four beasts are the same four kingdoms that we saw in Daniel chapter 2 in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember the, the statue, the head of gold, and it was the uh, Babylon and uh, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Laying out the, the future of, of human history, the future of Gentile history. So, the first beast, beast was like a lion with wings on its back. Remember, remember the Island of Misfit Toys in Rudolph? I can't help but think of that king of the Island of Misfit Toys. Mike Smith, what was his name? You know his name. Moon something or other, right? Moon, I don't know. Somebody, somebody Google that and text me later. All I could think of is that, that, that is way, the claymation, the claymation Rudolph character is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a terrifying beast, right? So he is, he is a lion with eagle's wings, the king of the jungle mixed with like the king of the air, right? Powerful in every aspect. Both Jeremiah and Ezekiel speak of King Nebuchadnezzar as a lion, 
Both of those prophets of God compare him to a lion. He is the head of gold in the statue. This is, this is Babylon, this first kingdom. In fact, as, as the ruins of Babylon were being excavated, they've actually found statues of winged lions among the ruins. Interesting. The wings plucked off and then he would rise up and be given the mind of a man. Do you remember what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar as he was brought low and humbled and then was raised up and given his kingdom back and his sanity was restored to him? Picked up and given the mind of the man, the restoration of the king. The first beast that we see is, is the kingdom of Babylon. The second beast was like a bear, but a lopsided bear kind of walked with a bit of a limp. This, this would correspond with the Medo-Persian Empire. And the bear was an apt symbol of that kingdom because it was noted for its great size and its fierceness, but also because Persia rode to rose to prominence in that alliance. So while they were working together, Persia became stronger. That makes sense. It was told to devour three ribs in its mouth. Those are fun. I like ribs. Sounds like a bear I could hang out with, right? Some scholars say that these ribs in the bear's mouth are specific kingdoms that the empire conquered, and historically they could be. Some say it just symbolizes the fierceness and the appetite for destruction that the bear had also could be a good description. The fact that the bear was told to devour is a subtle yet clear indication that this is a decree from heaven, that this is a providential thing that the Medo-Persian Empire would have success. The four winds are stirring up the great beasts. The beast is given a decree. God is still in control, even though it looks pretty chaotic, right? The third beast, the third beast was like a leopard, but again, this is no ordinary leopard. This leopard has four wings on its back and it had four heads and was given dominion. It was given dominion. It was given authority to rule. The four winds summoned the beast, decreed that they would conquer, gave authority and dominion to the kingdoms. The speed of the leopard is its dominant characteristic. Following the Medo-Persian Empire, Alexander the Great led the Greek Empire to dominance over the entire world in only 10 years. It is said that he wept at the end of the conquest because as a young man he had nothing left to overtake. This kingdom had four heads. Daniel here predicting that the kingdom would evolve and have four rulers or would evolve into four kingdoms, which is exactly what happened historically when Alexander died at the ripe old age of 32. And his four generals split the empire up. And there's a fourth beast. But this beast isn't compared to anything. Because it's not like anything Daniel has ever seen. This beast, nothing compared to it. It was altogether different. You see how he describes it? He describes it as terrifying, as dreadful, exceedingly strong, with great iron teeth that devoured and broke into pieces and stamped on what was left of the pieces. Total annihilation and destruction. 
And this beast is different, and it has ten horns. What, what are we to make of the horns? Well, that's a great question. I'm sure you have a theory. I'd love to hear it over a cup of coffee some other time. What, is, what, what are these ten horns? Some have suggested the ten horns, right, are the Roman Empire and ten kings, right, that, that have come up in succession. Some suggested that they're ruling all together at the same time, which made people really excited with the European Union. And Some have suggested that, that a normal a normal beast would have two horns. This one has five times that. It's, it's a description, a symbolic description of how fierce and strong it is. I don't, I don't know that I like that one. I think that's a little too weak. Bottom line, what, what is clear and plain that this beast is altogether different. It is a kingdom, that's what we were told. This kingdom is altogether different. It's terrifying, dreadful, exceedingly strong, and it destroys what's in its path, and it has ten leaders, rulers, horns. And out of, as I looked at these ten horns, Daniel says, out of the horns rose up another little horn. And as he rose, three of the other horns were plucked up. So this horn is displacing three other horns. And this horn, though, this horn had eyes like a man and a mouth speaking great things. Well, that's weird, isn't it? That is an odd thing to see. A little more concerning for Daniel. You know, by the second century BC, Rome had superseded Greece as the dominant empire. This is the, the, um, the feet of uh, the iron legs and the feet of the, the uh, statue in chapter 2. This kingdom was marked by its size and its power and also its cruelty at times. As it was different, Rome established a dominant reign unlike anything the world had ever seen. And the effects of the Roman Empire are actually still being felt today. Thousands of years later. Even though it may not be the dominant world power, its influence over the world powers today is still seen. It was unlike anything that had ever come onto the scene. That is a crazy dream. Look at verse 9. Look at verse 9. I don't think you can have a more pronounced distinction. Daniel is alerted in the middle of the night to this wild dream of heavenly visions of terrifying beasts and, and conquering beasts and just frightening imagery. And then instantly he sees into the heavens the thrones being established and placed. I call this section order in the court. Out of the parade of beasts, his, his, his eyes look to heaven and what they see there is comforting and beautiful. In verses seven to eight, the biblical character that we know as the Antichrist comes on the scene and begins to make great boasts about the God of heaven. And in verse nine, the God of heaven is calmly taking his seat. Here's what I love about this, right? You, we, and as we see through, through supplemental material in Revelation and again here later in this chapter, this little horn, the Antichrist, makes great boasts against God and, and against his people and wages war against them. And in his, in his aggression towards the holy God of Daniel, the God of the Bible, we see into heaven and we don't see God frantic. We don't see him running around panicking we see him ordering 
the establishment of the court. We see him taking his place on the throne. We, we, see, him, we see him named the Ancient of Days. He is the eternal God. And the kings of each of these kingdoms, it, it should not be lost on us that we have just watched kingdom rise and kingdom fall, kingdom rise and kingdom fall, and now what we see is the ruler of a kingdom who has never been beaten, who has never been conquered, who has never left his place on the throne. The, the contrast could not be greater, and the contrast should comfort the saints of God. That although the kingdoms of this world look like they are out of control, the Most High, the Ancient of Days, has not left his post. And what do we see? We see his hair white as snow, or his clothing white as snow, like a sign of purity. And we see white hair, a sign of old age, white like wool, depicting, depicting the wisdom and eternality of God. His throne is aflame with the fire of judgment. This throne on which the Ancient of Days sat was in essence the seat of righteousness and holy judgment. Remember the psalmist says that a fire goes out from before him and consumes all his enemies in righteousness and justice. God rules and reigns. The wheels are burning. There is a river of fire that projects out of the throne room. And countless servants and worshipers are around the throne. And the court sat in judgment. Look at that next phrase. And the books were opened. Now we see the purpose of this congregation. The books here are the divine records of the deeds, the thoughts, the attitudes of every person, high or low, who has ever lived. The deeds and attitudes and actions of this Antichrist and his kingdom that were waging war against the kingdom of God. And on that day, when the court is called to order, the Ancient of Days will preside over the judgment. What a terrifying thought. For nations and for people, that it has been appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment. That there is coming a day when every man, woman, and nation will stand before God and the books will be opened. And in the presence of pure righteousness, in the presence of holiness, in the presence of perfection, will be judged. Now for those of us who have never trusted Christ, this is a terrifying thought. For those of us who have placed our faith and trust in the gospel, that Jesus is the substitute for our sins, this is a comforting thought because we have, we have a, an intercessor we have a high priest. We have an advocate who will stand in front of us before that holy and righteous judge. And as we plead the blood of Jesus on our lives, he will say to his father, that's okay, dad, these guys are with me. I've paid their price. What a, what a glorious thought. The ancient of days has reviewed and judged this kingdom of Antichrist and he's found him guilty. And Daniel heard the great words being spoken by the horn. He could hear the boasting and the, the, um, the violence against the kingdom of God. And he watched 
And as he watched, the beast was killed, its body was destroyed, and it was burned with fire. But the other beasts were given the blessing of having their lives prolonged. You see, the kingdom of the little horn is decisively and swiftly brought to destruction. But the remnants of the other kingdoms were allowed to linger. The kingdom of Babylon wasn't incinerated. It was just assimilated into the Medo-Persian Empire. It was allowed to continue. The same with the Greek Empire. But this kingdom of Antichrist, this kingdom that has set itself against the Most High God, will be swiftly and soundly destroyed. And then there's a new kingdom. Look at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. The son of man is, by the way, Jesus' most favorite way of describing himself in the Gospels. There comes one on the clouds or with the clouds and he comes to present himself to the Ancient of Days. He doesn't come from the Ancient of Days and leave. No, he's coming, he's returning to the Ancient of Days. And when he comes, the Ancient of Days, as he's presented before him, gives to him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. This is the Lord Jesus Christ. In his ascension to heaven, he's paid the price. He's offered his body as the sacrifice for our sins He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was buried and three days rose again and as he ascends into heaven, he returns to the Father. The Ancient of Days is pleased with his sacrifice and places upon him dominion and authority to rule and reign. And that kingdom is a worldwide kingdom, multinational, multi-ethnic, multilingual. From every conceivable background, people will unite in serving the Son of Man in this kingdom. And that kingdom will never pass away. And the contrast couldn't be any more pronounced. We just watched four kingdoms rise and fall, but this one, this one will never pass away. Because those kingdoms of this world are just temporary. But the kingdom of God is eternal. So Daniel gets done with all that. In verse 15, he says, Ah, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I approached, I approached one who stood there and asked for an interpretation. I love the fact that he still doesn't know what it means. We have the, we have the privilege of looking back through the lens of history, and we can connect some of these dots. Daniel is writing this at the height of the Babylonian Empire before Babylon even fell. He doesn't have a clue what it all means yet. And he says, what what is all this about? And that's when the one standing says to him, these four great beasts are four kings who will rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. Okay, so these four beasts are the four kings, I got that, but ultimately the kingdom is for the saints of the Most High. And then he says, okay, I got that, but what about that little one? And he asks for some more information. What about the little horn? What about the fourth 
beast. Something was terrifying and exceedingly dreadful about it. What is it about that one? Can you explain that one to me? And he got an interpretation. And we get a little bit more information. We hear now that these three horns in verse 20 fell before that horn, that he had eyes, like a, eyes and a mouth, he spoke great things, that he seemed greater than his companions. Verse 21, that this horn made war over the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. That this horn was allowed to persecute the saints of God for a time until the Ancient of Days came onto the scene and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And then he said, here's what that fourth beast is. Here's what you need to know. The fourth kingdom is indeed different and it's going to devour the entire earth in its scope and its ferocity. It will consume the earth. And Daniel, those ten horns that you saw, they are ten kings. And there is one that will come after them. But three kings will fall before him. That little horn is different than any of these ten kings. And those ten kings were different than anything the world has ever seen. This little king, this little horn, this antichrist, he will blaspheme against the most high God. He will wear out the saints of God. He will oppress them. That word wear out means like you wear out a garment, like it would be threadbare and tattered. That this king would set himself against the kingdoms of God and would wear out the people of God. If this is the same ruler as the one mentioned in Revelation 13, then he will abolish religious freedom. He will demand allegiance and apply economic pressure to ensure that he gets all that he desires. He will even think to change the times and the law. Some think that means that he'll look to eliminate holidays or or purge the calendar of those religious celebrations. I think the, um, the leader of North Korea just created his own time zone a couple years ago, right? I'm not saying he's the Antichrist, but I'm just saying that there's, there is a never-ending stream of rebellious and arrogant, proud people who think they can do whatever they want. And if the, kingdom, if, the, if the return of Christ is imminent, then we should believe that at any moment there is somebody selected on the earth of the, who Satan could empower to make this a reality. And the saints of God will be given into his hand. Given. The four winds stirred up the sea and the beasts. Dominion was handed. Dominion is given. The saints were given into the hand. There is a controlling force behind all of this. The Ancient of Days who is seated on the throne. Full control of what's happening. The saints will be given into his hand, but it won't be an eternal punishment. They'll be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. Some suggest this is just a symbolic number indicating that the king will have limited reign and limited rule of terror. Many of you will know this is popularly understood to mean the three and a half years. When taken into consideration with Revelation uh, chapter 11, where Jerusalem is trampled for 42 months, Revelation 13, where the beast is given power for 42 months, and even Daniel chapter 9 in a couple weeks where where a covenant is broken in the middle of a week or a group of seven or three and a half years, the indication here is that this little horn will be given the ability to persecute the people of God for three and a half years, this figure known as the Antichrist. A wicked ruler, empowered by Satan, the man of lawlessness, who leads leads the United Kingdoms of this world, not the United Kingdom, but the United Kingdom, if you're British, don't hate me, not the United Kingdoms of this world against the kingdom of God, He comes on the scene near the end of the age at the time before the second coming of Jesus Christ. 
And all of that is terrifying, isn't it? But, look at verse 26. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away. You see, this Antichrist will make great boasts. This, this king, this arrogant, proud ruler of this world will wage war against the people of God. He will make great boasts against the people of God. And his terror will seem unchecked, but it will be held in account by the Ancient of Days who holds him accountable to a higher law, to a supreme court, to a holy judge. He is not given unchecked authority to wear out the people of God forever, but only for a time. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms of the earth are taken from him. And they're handed to whom? To the saints of the Most High God, who will rule and reign forever with Jesus. And here, he says, is the end of the matter. And as for me, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, my color changed, and I kept the matter in my heart. Wow. Kind of like Mary when she hid those things in her heart, right? Daniel did not receive this vision with, with much intrigue and excitement. He was frightened. And he was anxious. He was worried. He was unsettled by it all. And he hid it. So what? What in the world are we to make of this? Okay, the, the three guys in the furnace was way easier, right? The, the lion's den, the, the, the diet of vegetables, that was way easier. What do we make of this? So here's, here's predictably a few thoughts that I have on this whole matter. One, the God of Daniel, by the way, that's the God we serve, the God who revealed himself in the scriptures. The God of Daniel is a God who knows, reveals, and influences the future. He, this is wild. This, this is what distinguishes him in part, isn't it? From the other gods of the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and all the other little G gods of this world. Our God is the one who sits in a throne reigning supreme over all of human history. And he gives this vision to Daniel in the first year of Belshazzar before Babylon has ever fallen to Darius the Mede. So that when it falls to Darius the Mede, and when the exiles are watching the unsettling of the kingdoms of this world, they might read and be comforted that their God knew this in advance and revealed it to them because he's in control. What other God in history can do that? Which other God in history can predict the future years and years, hundreds of years before it comes to pass and then orchestrate it all in such a way that it would be perfectly fulfilled? Secondly, this morning, to a group of exiles struggling with the fear and uncertainty of living in a foreign land, this would come to them as a great comfort because their God is one who has set a deadline for their suffering and their persecution. And while the leaders of this world seem to rage unchecked against the people of God, in his timing they will be brought low under his holy hand of judgment and he will vindicate his name by liberating and delivering his people. Guys, there's a message in there for us. Because sometimes we feel like exiles. Sometimes it feels like the world we live in is nothing like the world we used to know. 
And it feels like the animosity against the kingdom of God is growing at such an alarming rate. We feel like our, our very values and ideals are being um, mocked and assaulted. And sometimes we look at the, the governing authorities, the decisions they're making, the trajectory of our culture, and we wonder, is this ever going to end? Does this ever stop? We see our brothers and sisters around the world being persecuted to the point of death, and we wonder, does this ever end? And the resounding answer is yes. Yes, it ends, and it ends gloriously for us, and it ends well, and it ends with you and I who have trusted Christ ruling and reigning together with him forever and ever, and all the glory of all the kingdoms of the world are stripped away from those who hate God and given to the children of God who will serve and rule and reign with Jesus. As we are exiles, be reminded today, there's a limit to the suffering. There's a limit to the persecution. And in God's timing and in his perfect providence, he'll make it right. There is, thirdly, a holy God who sits sovereignly in control over all the world, and everyone, great and small, will have to give an account to him. And one day, the books are gonna be open for you appointed unto men once to die and then the judgment the Bible says does that comfort you or concern you that's a good question to ask there's coming a day where you will stand before a holy and a righteous God and the books will be opened are you comforted by that fact or does that concern you you see those of us who have trusted Christ those of us who have seen Jesus as the Messiah the, the promised one the son of God who, who bore our sins in his body on the tree, who was buried and rose again the third day. Those of us who have trusted Christ, the Bible says our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And although, although that book of, of deeds may have a lot of things under the name Matt Eaches, there's gonna be a special spot right there indicating that my name is written in the book of life because I've trusted Christ. Friends, those who have not trusted Christ, whose names are not found written in the book of life, will stand before God to give an account personally. And their end will be the same as Antichrist and the kingdoms of this world, swift destruction under the holy judgment of God. And what hope is there then? If, that, if that's you today and you're frightened by that and you're alarmed by that and you're wondering, then what hope do I have? The only hope you have is Jesus Christ, the Son of Man who came to die on the cross for our sins, to pay the penalty so that when the righteous wrath of God is doled out, we can be sheltered and rescued from it, not because we are good people, but because we've trusted him through faith and believed in him. If you have never trusted Christ, today is your day. In just a moment, we're gonna observe the Lord's Supper, which I can't imagine a more fitting way to honor this and to celebrate this idea that based on the broken body of Jesus and the shed blood of Christ, we who were guilty are declared forgiven and can be free. As we observe the Lord's Supper this morning, we're gonna allow this to be a time of reflection on the goodness of the gospel, that Christ has saved and rescued and ransomed us. So for us, the time of of observing the Lord's table is the time of thanksgiving because we, we know how undeserving we really were. We knew that we were guilty before God and by his grace, he forgave us. We, we see this as a time of unity, that we are all partaking together of the body of Christ as an expression of our oneness here as a church. 
It's a time of worship because we celebrate what God has given us in Christ. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, we'd ask that you'd just observe, think, reflect, talk to one of us when this is over. But the table is reserved for those who are disciples of Jesus. As we focus our hearts and our minds on the work of King Jesus on our behalf, we are forced to think about the death he died for us, the sacrifice he made for you and me, the reality that a wounded savior, a bruised and bloodied king, the Messiah whose stripes were my healing, freely gave it all for us. I'm gonna pray in just a moment, and then when I'm done, the worship team will be up here. They're gonna be leading us in some songs. As the music is playing, we ask that you just come to the front, receive the elements, and walk back to your seats, and I'll lead us through taking them once everyone has been through the line. Would you stand with me? Let's pray. Father, we have been blessed today to hear your word proclaimed. We sit under its authority and we are all struck that hundreds of years, thousands of years before the realities of these kingdoms were fully known, you predicted it all. God, the saints, the saints are not left to wonder who's in control. We are not left to wonder is there purpose to this world. We're not left to wonder Where's it all going and where does it all end? By your mercy and your goodness, you've told us. Thank you for the light of truth that we know that there is one who sits on the throne, the ancient of days, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, who is strong, who is not defeated by the kingdoms of this world. And through faith, we have been welcomed into that kingdom. And through faith, we are more than conquerors. We rejoice. As we observe the Lord's Supper this morning, Lord, help us to do so with a glad thanksgiving for the broken body of the Lord Jesus, for the shed blood that cleansed us from our sin. Help us to recognize the beauty of the gospel, that in my place condemned he stood so that I might go free. Strengthen your church today as we observe the table. In Jesus' name.